Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, everyone. But also, one of our favorite people, returning guest, DC superfan, editor at ScreenRant.com, and unapologetic Canadian, Andrew Dice. Unapologetic? Well, you know, I threw that in there in the hopes that you were actually unapologetic. Oh, (laughs) yeah, I am... uh... Fiercely unapologetic about all of my beliefs, unless questioned on them. (laughs) Nice. Well, Todd Phillips' Joker, starring Joaquin Phoenix, is proving to be maybe the most polarizing movie of 2019. We'll have to see what J.J. Abrams does with that final Star Wars flick. It's a film that we have all been looking forward to, though, and we are excited to be back together again to chat about something new in the DC Universe Andrew, it is awesome to have you back on, and would you catch us up on what you've been up to at work lately? Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm freshly back from New York Comic Con, the second largest convention in America, uh, I've I've come to discover. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was a a wild half week and weekend, a lot of cool stuff was seen, um, a lot of things that I'm unfortunately not able to talk about. But things that I am very much looking forward to in the coming, uh, like, six to eight months TV season. But I watched a lot of Shit's Creek on the flight, I will say that. So, uh, as good as always, if anybody has yet to see it, consider this another endorsement. Did you say um, Shit's Creek? Yes, uh, S-C-H-I-T-T-S. Oh. We <laughs> don't get the E on that one. We're not getting yep. the E for that. Oh. The, uh, <laughs> the CBC original. Um, starring okay. Eugene Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara. All um, right, never heard Dan of Dan Levy. No man, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be tweeting at you saying, "How have you not seen Schitt's Creek? It is um, it's it's clean, clean fun. It isn't a clean fun, but it is a CBC original. So if you want to get another look at Canadian television, uh, that is your opportunity. But I can talk about that. I would like to talk about Watchmen, but instead I will talk about Schitt's Creek. Oh, wait, have you seen Watchmen? I may have. <gasps> oh my gosh. Now I'm just, oh. no, that's not fair. Oh man, I guess it's fair, but it's not fair. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not allowed to say anything about the show, but I look forward to people seeing it and talking about it. Excellent. Well, we definitely are looking forward to that as well. One quick reminder for the listeners, our voting for October's donor pick episode is happening now. That goes through October the 10th. Uh, you can join our amazing team of supporters by visiting patreon.com slash film to gain votes and participate in voting as early as this month. And of course, all future months, we're doing zombie movies to tie in with the next two weeks, which will be covering Zombieland and Zombieland Double Tap. So we figured, why not do another zombie movie to celebrate the Halloween season? So there are five of those to choose from. And like I said, just... uh even a $1 a month patronage will get you a vote, and you can help choose what that will be for October. Well, spoiler alert, this movie's about the Joker, and it gets nuts. <laughs> really nuts. And uh, well, we're going to... Let's get nuts, there. Let's get I nuts. know. That was kind of <laughs> where I was going with that. We were, uh, <laughs> we're going to spoil the heck out of this movie, as we always do, and we would probably all three recommend that you go check it out. 
So we're going to give you this warning and you're going to turn away if you haven't seen the movie because you need to experience it for yourself. And otherwise, you can stay along and hear us chat through what we felt about it. And we're going to start doing that with our one more takeaways. So, Andrew, this is our first chance as well to get to hear from you about what you thought of Joker. We actually don't know. We can guess, but we have no clue. So what was your one word takeaway? My one word takeaway is tragedy. I think that for all of the different origin stories for the Joker that have been offered over the years, even if they are not, you know, tragedies like in the classical three act, five act sense, it is tragic that this guy became who he is because he wasn't born that way. This is not an Anakin Skywalker, um, you know, raising eyebrows from the very beginning. I think that my favorite Joker stories, I'll say anyway, they say something. This guy exists to say something about the world that he was made in, in the same way, just as much as Batman was. Um, I think that the best versions of Joker have given them equal footing in terms of products of their environment, what they reflect on the audience and what they reflect on each other. And even though this is a Joker movie, not a Batman movie, I feel like we've gotten Batman, you know, down that road a million times in a million different stories. So I am very happy that this film wanted to make. When Joker becomes Joker, what he does is not tragic more than it is horrifying, but him becoming that guy, uh, I always thought worked best when it was a tragic thing to see happen. And with this movie, I, I finally got to. Outstanding. I'm, gl- I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> I can't wait to dig into the specifics. Patrick, what was your one word takeaway from this one? I wrestled with this quite a bit. I remember talking to you after I left the theater. This is one of the few that I got to see with a friend of mine, uh, a coworker. And so we had really, really fantastic discussion on the way uh, back to drop him off at his apartment. And as I sat with it for 24 hours, the only word that I could think of to describe how I felt leaving the theater and still felt was hopeless. And that could be too on the nose for most people because it's, it's definitely a sad movie, but there are few movies out there that from my take make me feel as hopeless as this one did. Manchester by the sea, I think takes a close second where you go through a narrative like this. You go through a story that starts out, kind of ripping at your at your heart a little bit and then over time it just slowly pulls it out like 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 Kalima style you know temple of doom only instead of just ripping it it slowly pulls it and as i left the theater i just kept thinking i don't want this to happen to anybody and i thought less about this being a comic book movie and more about a commentary on folks that deal with mental illness and living a life of poverty and struggling to make ends meet. And I don't want to go back and see it because I don't like to feel that way. I had a conversation tonight with some friends of mine about it who were trying to figure out if they wanted to go see the movie. And I said, it needs to be seen by everybody. It doesn't need to be necessarily entertained by everybody. But what the story is saying and the way in which we see this character evolve, 
not just to become the iconic villain that we know, but to see how he gets there is an exploration worth looking at in order to have an honest conversation about how we feel as human beings about those that are different from us. And I think it's, I don't like to use the word important because I know that's attached to a lot of movies, which are important, but I didn't want to say this is an important film, but it is because it evokes necessary conversation about a multitude of things that go beyond a superhero genre, something that is not explored in this type of genre. And when you walk away with the word hopeless, I don't want that to come across as you shouldn't see it. I would say manage your expectations, tend to your perspective going into it, and take it seriously. Because there's a lot about it that can be entertaining, but I think more than anything, there's more about it that's educational than anything else. Yep, that's good stuff, man. It's really good stuff. And, you know, it's interesting that you said expectations because that plays into my one word takeaway in a way. I came out with the word mesmerizing. And it's interesting because I went into this movie with very measured expectations. In fact, I had tweeted right before going to see it that I was so tired of the discourse from the previous two or three weeks about this film. It was nothing else being talked about in the Facebook group, it felt like. Every single article about this movie was being shared. Everybody was trying to judge it based on which different critical reviews they had read so far. Nobody had seen it in order to form their own opinion. It was just this nasty mess and I was tired. I was tired of it. And I went to this movie feeling more like I was ready to get the experience over with than I was actually excited to see it. And that really disappointed me because it started off as something I was really looking forward to at the beginning of the year. But as it went on, what I got was this film that was just absolutely magical to me. Uh, magical cinema. I mean, every single element of this movie clicked for me, it was outstanding color framing of this 70s-esque cinematography. The emotionally evocative score was incredible. The performance by Phoenix, I mean, we can't say enough about that. And ultimately, Patrick, to what you're speaking on, the way that the narrative handled mental illness and violence in this Joker character that we all know so well while crafting his origin story it was able to blend in my favorite superhero as well in ways that all of that just totally surprised me. I was talking with our podcast uh, team member, Coles, and also another reviewer, Jeremy Johns, right after the movie about how I don't get this feeling very often where I feel like every single piece of this movie was perfect to me. I, I couldn't pinpoint any dips or things that I would have changed I just walked out of it literally on cloud nine. I went up to our press agent afterwards uh, for my pull quote or whatever, and I told her it was effing incredible. And that was all I could muster because I was just kind of almost speechless. It was a really special experience for me and one that I did enjoy, but I use that word not as we necessarily always use that word because it wasn't always a comfortable place, like you said. Uh, but every single second of it was wonderful to me. All right, well, let's start by 
getting into these criticisms of the film, uh, and I want to kind of talk through where we land on this. One of the big ones before the film released was that this movie made Joker's actions appealing and specifically that his portrayal could inspire violence or some sort of um, proud reaction from incels um, and that how essentially how one views this character through their own personal biases and experiences, I think can certainly make or break their experience. So my question is, is Arthur's character progression problematic for you at all? And if so, why, uh, Andrew? How did you land on the way that he's depicted? I will say, I'll first say that I'm, su- I'm surprised at how much conversation kind of surrounded this, you know, before, during, and maybe not after. People tend to move on from these things pretty quickly, but just the i have a hard time dealing with it because you're basically saying that a story about somebody who does bad things can inspire other people to do bad things and i don't know where i don't know why this movie would be singled out uh, considering that every about every movie i see has someone bad doing something bad in it uh, i think that yeah, you know, the same as you, I was exposed to the conversation out of time and the conversation seemed to be that this movie glorifies what he does. I don't if if someone walked out, if I saw this movie with someone and they walked out and they said I felt like it was glorifying what he did, I would say we probably should talk about this for your benefit, because I, I felt that the movie was um I guess it's from a different place because the taxi driver, I would have been curious to know how the conversation surrounding it would be if, if it came out now, which is a, a, almost a similar moral arc and strange conclusion that it comes to. I appreciate because all of this stuff, I think, will will not last as long as the movie. I appreciate the the fact that the conversation ahead of time and and, and during this release of this movie is this is dangerous, this is bad, and this is wrong and misinformed. And if other people see this, it will inspire the same kind of behavior. And that is exactly the mentality portrayed in the movie by the characters about what Arthur is doing. So I don't know if that was intended. I'm going to assume probably not ahead of time. But in those moments where people were saying, you know, this guy is sick, this is wrong, uh, you know, I'm going to say disparaging words about anybody who would side with him or see anything to do with with what he's saying or even really listen to what the guy has to say. It's just wrong. It's all bad. Um, you're kind of you're commenting on what the movie is about, that, that the people in positions of power and the institutions are the ones who say that it's not the people among, you know, the group that Arthur is among, I won't say the group that is Arthur's. Well, we'll get into that a little bit later because I think that the movie draws a line between what he wants and what the, what Gotham wants. But I, I do think that I found it a tragedy. So I don't think any tragedy is glorifying for the main character. You know, I, I, I put down Hamlet and think, woof, not, not a great story for you there, Hamlet. I don't walk away and think like, boy, I should, 
I should really take some lessons from this guy that everything turned out horrible for. Uh, like you guys are saying, I think that there's more instruction here than a, a, a cautionary tale about a character who, by the end of the movie, it seems like we're kind of uh, beyond the, the point of emulating the behavior. I appreciate the concerns that people have. The, the issue for me is I don't know where you draw the line on that kind of thing. Bully kids are always going to like the bully characters. So I don't even know where you start. There's two things that I noticed. Um, one is context. I know that some of these reviews or some of these comments were made by folks that hadn't seen the movie yet. They just see what they want to see the trailers, whatever, which I have to dismiss because you have got to see the movie in order to make a comment on it. Um, but for those that did and still have that, I would say that the concerns are valid, but valid to a point where you have a movie that amplifies a reality of where people are. If this had been, as you mentioned, Andrew, a superhero where a villain had been going, going crazy, let's say like Punisher, for instance, you don't see a lot of that concern because the character of the Punisher who has a somewhat grounded backstory isn't necessarily taken seriously in the real world. And I think that's to the credit of Todd Phillips and his creative team in creating a character that relates to a lot of what we see in our world today from the sake of the 99%, those that live in areas that we don't want to talk about, those that suffer from mental health that we don't understand, all these things that are tackled in the movie, I I think that's where those concerns come from because those people do exist. They're not the Punisher or pick your crazy character from any other movie. And at the same time, when you have the context of the film – you understand that there is no glorification. This is a journey that's uncomfortable, but that discomfort should lend itself to having conversations with those that might be dealing with something like that. To be candid, I have a friend of mine who battles depression and who has not suicidal thoughts necessarily, but he's had thoughts and he feels uncomfortable in his environment. And he's uncomfortable knowing that he could have an outburst at any given point and wondering what people will think of that. That's very real. So what do I do with that? Well, I listen because he needs a friend more than anything else, just like I do. And I try to understand him knowing that I can't fully appreciate where he is in his mental state, that he's trying to live a so-called normal life, knowing that he has to live with this illness or this condition medication helps but nothing's perfect and so he gives me a window into understanding a person or people that are different from me that redefine what normal is because to them normal is that to fleck normal is how he is living and how he ultimately comes to who he is in the form of joker but when i think about context and seeing just a glimpse of someone. I think about watching the trailer and seeing the scene where Fleck is walking down a hallway and he's laughing hysterically and then he stops suddenly 
my reaction during the trailer was, wow, that's really creepy. But seeing it in context, knowing that that's part of his condition, it is triggered by nervousness or stress. And to see him react that way and then go straight faced and then have sympathy for him because I understand him a little bit more. And so my response to those criticisms would be they're valid, but they're valid only to an extent that you're not having a conversation about them. I think if you have people who relate to this character in some way, shape or form, like you said, Andrew, there needs to be a conversation about that. I need to say, what is it about that character that appeals to you? And, and it may get serious because I don't think this movie is one that you can just say, Oh, that was great. And then kind of cast it away. I think it needs to be something that you sit on for a little bit. You think about, and you see how it makes you respond to the world around you. Yeah, absolutely. And people. And that's where I think there is this subset of folks who want the world to be black and white. Everyone is good or bad. There is no room for empathizing for the person that is eventually going to shoot up the school. And that is what I think the fears were about this one. I actually went into this fully believing that the Joker was going to perform some sort of massive act of violence akin to the things that we see in the news frequently. Like that's the kind of dialogue that was happening online. And of course there's none of that (laughs) in the way that it takes place. The murders are actually, I mean, they're very small in nature as far as number wise and there's only a few scenes of them. There's no mass shooting or anything of the sort. And I think that, um, you know, for me, it just feels like with a character that you actually do feel sorry for and you have to take some responsibility as a person as part of the world that created him. And I think that maybe people don't want to do that. They, they, they don't want to believe that they're part of a problem or that they exist in a society that is part of a problem. They want to believe that it is just that person's choices. And that's all there is to it. Um, and so maybe that has something to do with the response and the fear around it. The whole incel thing, I've had to look that word up like 15 times, guys, to be honest with you. I didn't know what it was. And if you're not familiar with it, and listeners, if you're not familiar with it, essentially it's the idea of a white male usually who is... Um, feels wronged. Um, they are sexually celibate because they do not feel that women are fairly giving them a chance. And so it's this very, woe is me, no one loves me, um, and so I can't, I can't have the things that everybody else can have. I'm being kind of discriminated against by women, essentially, is a lot of what comes from that. And people were lifting up this character as being, they were assuming, before the movie at least, as being this kind of character that was going to be someone that those folks would champion, right? Because what we see in the trailers and we hear from the early critics are like, oh, he's completely, you know, beaten down and and he's treated like crap by women. And so, you know, that's part of, I didn't get that at all. (laughs) Okay, like his whole relationship with Sophie, I think is probably where some of that might come from. Sophie being uh, his neighbor, played by Zazie Beetz. And I actually never got the sense or the feeling that 
Arthur was reacting to a sense of rejection from her. I, I never really actually felt like he made too much of an attempt there to have a relationship. Now, yeah. you know, she actually seems pretty reasonable to him the first time they meet in the elevator. Um, you know, she's a little shocked when he's in her house, uh, understandably. But other than that, I don't see this incel like behavior in him yeah. at all. I, yeah, I, I the thing the main thing that really like undercuts that for me is the most violent. Uh, I I would ne- I would almost never describe Arthur as angry. It, it's usually hurt. Like it's usually pain or emotion that he doesn't know what to do with. Like he's, you know, you can take a, a, a shot of the trailer of him in the makeup, smiling to himself and thinking he, look, he looks powerful. But throughout most of the movie, when he is most active, there are tears in his eyes. Like he is emotionally breaking because he is a, a person who is breaking down, who, do, who doesn't know what to do with the feelings that they're feeling. I never saw any of the things he did as um, empowering. And even when he raises them as, you know, I he he stopped short of saying, like, it made me feel good. He, he kind of speaks in a more nebulous way about it. But even that was not like, yeah, I did it. And he never took like there was no never any um, I want to say like testosterone or macho like. You know, yeah, I'm a person who does this thing. He spent most of the movie reacting to stuff, like up until the very last shots of the film. So, um, like you said, yeah, like you guys said, I, I appreciate the concern. I think that anytime someone says, do not listen to this man, his words are dangerous. Uh, my first instinct is always let me decide for myself. Uh, and honestly, I think, I think the movie, makes too many efforts to show why the responsibility for this is on all of us to also say that it is um, glorifying it because I think most of the steps along the way show he should never have become this right not he did this despite society's attempts to keep him from becoming and it's like no there was no attempt to keep him from becoming for this that's the whole point right no, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think that were we to see a movie that actually glorified this character, that would have to be done in a way that showed it as appealing. And you, you alluded to this or said this early on in this topic, Andrew, about like, there's no win here for the Joker. He gets arrested. <laughs> he goes to a mental hospital and a prison, essentially. Like, that's the end result of his actions. This isn't you get to kill everybody and your life got better. You know what I mean? And so there's not a winning in the sense that it would be an appealing situation for someone to mimic necessarily. I also think that this is a comic book movie and this is an origin story of a villain. And this is how origin stories of villains work. No matter what the villain has to be somewhat successful in their evil in order to become the threat that the hero has to vanquish. So like if to what you said, Patrick, about context, if you don't read this in that context, then I mean, okay. So if this was a traditional drama and the bad guy or the character that goes 
you know, a little too crazy after being, you know, crapped on by society for so long and shoots some people up and ends up dying. And then the story is the tragedy of that. That's a different thing. That's a drama film or whatever that is not in a comic book world where superheroes exist that have to, you know, have this all opposing force. And so because of that, I don't think you can possibly see this as glorifying his actions, or you would have to think that every single villain in all of history that's ever portrayed is somehow being glorified by the stories that we tell about him. The thing for me is it's become, it's used so often now in geez, you know, like let's just Lord of the Rings movies, DC movies, Marvel movies, every movie that has a villain in the marketing, they say, well, the best villains are the heroes of their own story. And you say that as buzzwords, and usually it amounts to we're kind of giving him like half a case where you can understand what he's saying. This is that like th- this is the definition of he is the hero of his own story and us on the outside of it get to look at it and say, but he's a villain to the larger world. The, I feel like this completely delivers on the fact that Arthur at the end of this story has had his hero's journey and has self-actualized and self-realized and he's become the guy who is totally the hero against the evil forces except it's on us to say oh no he's a villain that's just what that actually means when you're looking at a villain story because he has to be the hero of it like i will look at that buzzword and phrase differently from now on because when people say oh you know i mean hella in thor ragnarok well, you know, every villain is the hero of their own story, so she definitely has a reason for what she's doing. I will think, yeah, but if you actually did that, people would feel really conflicted about it, and there would be divisive controversies and discussions because you'd have a whole lot of people saying, what are you doing? You made this villain make more sense than the hero. Um, and I, we, this made me realize, I guess, how rarely we do get that, that uh, – Maybe it's just me knowing the Joker is a villain that I walked into the theater thinking that. I have to accept my own bias here. I'm not a big Joker booster. Well, there's regardless a... of what you may hear about me, unapologetically, Joker <laughs> bad. Okay, but you make a good point. I think Thanos comes in at a at a distant second sure. in Infinity War. That was his story, and that was a small criticism at the fact that we didn't get more Avengers time. When the fact is. We needed to see Thanos. We needed to see his motive. And while it wasn't as in-depth, I think it's what made him probably the most successful villain in the MCU because he gave us pause. He allowed us to say, you know what? Maybe he's right. I think the other interesting thing about this, about what you said, is the fact that who's the villain in the story? We're the villain. Like We are, in a sense, as an audience, as we're watching this, as we're walking through flex story unable to help him unable to react to him or respond to him we are the audience in the talk show we are those sitting in the control booth watching all these things on television play over and over again we are spectators in this and in a lot of ways that's what the story is trying to articulate is that to him the world is watching but not actively participating And I think it's when the riots happen, that's when he starts seeing, oh, this is what participation looks like. It just happens to be by the 99% that see him as the tribute that they need to pay homage to. 
And I think that's what makes people uncomfortable, myself included, is that we are actually the villain in the story. He's the protagonist. He's not the villain in a sense. But at the end of the day, I agree with you, Joker, bad. He's not to be <laughs> he's not to be taken in a heroic sense. Well, I want to kind of piggyback off that for the next thing about mental illness, um, Patrick. And, and you can maybe speak to this first if you want to go a little further on what you were saying earlier. But, you know, the way his mental illness is shown is going to be a point that some viewers are either going to turn away from and not appreciate or not connect to, or others are going to do what I think the film is intending us to do, which is feel very empathetic for this human being. He has this condition that is, sees him laugh uncontrollably, 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 which creates a very socially awkward experience for him that ends up in him being mistreated. I actually personally related to this in a sense because Early on when I was diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome, and I know that everybody hearing this on the podcast right now is thinking, what? You don't have Tourette's? You don't curse like crazy? Well, I didn't do that, okay? That's actually a very small percentage of people that have Tourette's syndrome. But what you do get is you get these physical, they call, they're called tics, and they're essentially uncontrollable body movements. And when I first got diagnosed with this, I'd be walking down the street, and I would my arms would just jerk out, and I'd punch somebody walking next to me. Um, my face would kind of jolt, uh, you know, and twitch is what I would call it, left and right all the time. My neck would just constantly be twitching. And I looked really, really ridiculous sometimes. And it was awkward. It was socially awkward. I didn't even want to go out in public because people would look at me and they would judge me based on having no earthly idea. And I didn't have a card to present to tell them what my condition was, right? And so that's what he's experiencing. And so I felt for him extremely strongly. And on top of that, we have his character built as this aspiring comedian uh, who his life goal is he wants to make people laugh. He just wants them to laugh at his material and not laugh at him. That's the big difference. And so I wondered, you know, what do you think about the way that his mental illness was shown and how, I guess, did that, make it relate for you guys and Patrick, if you want to start. Sure. Um, so I battled depression. It's not severe comparatively speaking, but I go through seasonal affect during the, this time of the year. It's kind of this weird duality that I actually enjoy this time of year more than any other time. And yet it's the time when my depression probably hits a little bit harder, but my wife works with a special needs kid who has autism. Um, I have a nephew who has, has autism. These are, and, and I stress the, the, the phrase special needs because obviously the word retarded is not appropriate these days and it's demeaning, um, mentally challenged, things like that. These are words that produce an idea that someone is less or someone is not part of the norm. And while I'm not going to be naive to think that the world operates a certain way and there are deviations of that because of lifestyle choices or disabilities or different kinds of illnesses, whether it be mental or physical, the fact is we are all people and 
we have got to understand that even though someone is different from us, that doesn't make them less than us. And that may sound like a, the more you know, like a Hallmark card or whatever, but it's still the truth. And there is a fantastic quote that has stayed with me. And I cannot remember if he says it or if it's written down, maybe it's both. But he says, the worst part about having a mental illness is people expect you to behave as if you don't. I can't get that out of my head because it's a so it's such a true statement. When you think about the fact that you have to act a certain way and you're bottled up because you cannot release what feels natural to you, what feels normal to you, even though it doesn't feel normal to the world, it put me in his headspace for just a second to understand that here's a guy who is trying to behave in a way that is accepted by society, by the culture around him, and he's being berated because of something that is out of his control. Even handing someone a card doesn't keep her from being uncomfortable with him. It doesn't preclude her from saying, stop talking to my child, even though he's not doing anything wrong. And the sad thing, Aaron, is that over the course of the movie, when he stops taking his medication, when he, I guess, fully embraces who he is, that's when the laughter, the uncomfortable laughter dissipates. And by the end of the movie, his laughter is genuinely coming from a place of, I don't want to call it happiness, but it's not being triggered by nervousness. It's not being triggered by this trapped individual that's trying to operate in a world that thinks what he's doing is wrong. I'm not endorsing what he's doing as right, but I had empathy for him because he fought so long to be one way. And when he started being the other way, you could see it on his face, the way that Joaquin Phoenix carries himself in the back half of the movie. When he kills his mom, he stops taking his meds. It's scary, but you can see there's a relaxed facial expression. There's a relaxed feel in his body movement and everything. Everything feels almost like, oh, life is normal now. I don't have to worry about how someone's going to feel about this. I now have confidence in myself. It reminded me of a scene in Silver Linings Playbook when uh, when Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence are talking about the different medications and they're laughing because of the fact that they're familiar with these all these medications that they've taken and they get to one and I think Bradley Cooper's character says, oh yeah, that makes me really foggy. I can't even think straight. And she's like, oh yeah, yeah, I never want to take that. Very true thing. It's, it's very tongue in cheek when it comes to that kind of stuff. But the truth is taking medication after medication after medication, I think he was on what, six does something to you that goes beyond. It doesn't fix you. It doesn't make you better. And so I think the movie is saying a lot, not about how we shouldn't be taking medication because I think it's a healthy thing to do in conjunction with other things. What we have is a guy who was just constantly being medicated because either nobody knew how to help him or nobody wanted to help him. But the underlying message is that nobody understood how and nobody really bothered. And so for me, I, I sit in that and I go, okay, how do I understand my nephew? How do I understand my friend who battles depression on a more uh, significant level? And if I can't understand, how do I connect with these, these guys in a way 
where they can feel like they have a friend. They feel like they can trust. And in the weirdest way, I think the movie is challenging me in a good way to dive into that and to try to find ways to do that because it's not. And there's a, there's something really beautiful about that. Um, I think it was incredibly effective for me. And I'd like to think that for folks that saw this, that was something that, that they were affected by too. What about you, Andrew? Uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll kind of give up the goat here. The reason I have Watchmen on my brain is because I was coming out of the movie and remembering uh, the scene in Watchmen where you have, you'll have to imagine this in Rorschach's voice. Um, it says, you know, I heard a joke. Man goes to the doctor, says he's depressed. Life is cruel. I feel alone. And the doctor says, oh, it's easy. The the great clown Pagliacci's in town. You know, go see him. That'll cheer you up. And he said, bursts into tears and says, doctor, I'm Pagliacci. Uh, good joke. Everybody laughs. Roll on snare drum curtains. And, you know, it's like that approach to it of just, oh, yeah, the reality of this is we just don't want to talk about it. We don't want to think about it. You know, there's the curtains like this. This movie is you feel empathetic for Arthur because you should. Uh, you know, I was watching him. Uh, my my wife works in child protection and um, is, is a big fan of true crime. So I've had that serial killer and sociopath, you know, development seep into my just basic knowledge. And so when in the, the comedy club, uh, he didn't know what parts to laugh at. And, and you could see on his face, I was watching that. And like, like you said, someone could see, oh, he's just being weird. And I'm watching that thinking he is, you're watching a, a sociopath not know how, not know the cues of how to fit in. And that just plays out for him horribly. But not all sociopaths are evil. <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the whole point. Um, he says he wants help. You know, I think that when he says I need more medication and she says, I think you're on seven now, I assume that's supposed to read as this is not working. You know, like the system is failing him um, through the rest of the movie. He is he didn't fall through the cracks, right? Like the crack was made and he was pushed into it. it, it this is and that is a sad story. He I think the the scene that sticks out in my mind was when he said to his social worker, you're not listening to me. I'm telling you flat out. I didn't know if I existed my entire life. And <laughs> the moment I think when the, when the guy working in the hospital says, you know, you should really see somebody. I had to like stifle a laugh. Like it's just because that's what people say in our world, right? You should see somebody doesn't matter that it's hard to find. It doesn't matter that those programs are not available. It doesn't matter that there's a stigma and everybody will call you crazy. Um, you should take care of this, right? You should get that looked after. Uh, I think that when, because what you were saying, Patch, like someone could see this as endorsing going off of his medication, but I feel like you need to look at what happens when he does and what happens when he does is he defies what he himself wanted earlier in the he said i don't want these negative thoughts i don't want to feel so unhappy all the time um and 
you know, I, this is not a Batman white knight scenario where he's two completely different people, but that version of Arthur is not who we see, you know, at the end. I, I, the moment that really drove it home for me about the message that I was taking away from the movie was him getting ready for the show in full makeup, you know, fresh off these murders and seeing himself again on the monitor and thinking he must be unrecognizable to himself as who he was then, but who he was then I wanted to help. I like, I wanted him to get better and um, he got so much worse. And yeah, I mean the, the line that you called out, I remember when I first saw that in the trailer about the, the funny thing about a mental illness. Um, if you had those words come out of the Joker's mouth in any regular Batman movie, that would stand out of as the one of the most profound lines of the film. So I think that that being almost a thesis statement for this movie probably speaks to, to why it, it really resonated with me so much and, and why I think that a lot of people who know about um, how serial killers are made, how they behave, uh, how they are missed and how they are and are not, you know, um, empathetic. It's probably a conversation to be had about whether this Joker is insane or not that I think is, would be a really interesting one to have. But um, for also people who see, you know, uh, abuse leads to abuse. Um, I, I, I appreciate that that was shown because I think making this a Joker movie that a lot of people are excited to see will face them with a lot of realities about mental illness that they would prefer they not see, but that's kind of the point uh, of I the movie too, right? Totally agree. Totally agree with that. And I think that, you know, one criticism could be it's quote unquote surface level. I see a lot of folks who have claimed that the movie has nothing to say. It's just throwing these things out about showing you all of the ways that people can, you know, be, terrible to someone else and the way that you know it's making these very broad stroke statements about the healthcare system and how you know we see her telling arthur that you know it's shutting down and he she can't see him anymore so we get the sense of okay well now who's going to help him if the government's no longer going to do it and it, you know well, what is what is todd phillips trying to say about this what's his political statement like he needs to go deeper but i think that Yes, it's not, I know, right? It's not likely that someone is going to experience every single thing that Arthur Fleck does necessarily, right? They may not have zero people in their life and have a mom who has abused them and completely lied to them about their heritage and who is also mentally ill herself. And, you know, there's like all of these millions of things that happen to Arthur, it feels like. And so you could find yourself wanting to write that off as, oh, that's unrealistic. Nobody deals with all that stuff. But I think that goes back to the, the, the mirror thing. And I think if I had had a different one more takeaway other than mesmerizing, it was going to be mirror for me because that's what it was like for me. Was it wanted me, I wanted to hold up this mirror to myself and be like, okay, why do I think that? What is, a, what is about me that makes me think I should write off this person? Why am I unable to feel empathy for this person that is very clearly mentally ill? What is it about me that makes me want to laugh? If I, I think you said, Andrew, when you, when you start to chuckle, you actually, you find yourself kind of stopping and going, wait, why am I laughing at that? And that's, you know, one of the big things that I took away from the movie. 
is at the end of it, he's going on this rant on the Murray show about how, you know, every who gets to decide what's funny. He's like the society decides and tells you what's violent and what's not violent, what's right, what's not right, what's wrong, yeah. what's not wrong, what's funny and what's not funny. So I, I, w- I was noticing it after watching this movie. Like constantly. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. And you look at, I just look at my Facebook feed and I was like, how much of my Facebook feed is just people posting something that is in some way or another built off of the quote unquote thing that we say, it's a joke that is making fun of someone else. Even in one of the most, you know, famous film critics we have, David Ehrlich, uh, who writes for IndieWire, he completely trashed this movie for the most part in his review. And in doing so, it felt very ironic. He he called Todd Phillips an edgelord and just goes off to, like, make fun of his previous movies. And I was like, this is the point. Like, you're missing the whole point of Joker right now because it's telling you you need to be self-reflective and you need to think about the way that you treat people and that you, you can be critical of something or you can have an opinion about someone when and you can do so without – you don't necessarily have to be warm and fuzzy, but you don't have to be hurtful. Um, all the time. And so it just, I don't know, it made me wonder about myself and like all the things that I say and the judgments I make that are snap and, and don't take into account what someone might be going through. There's an interesting thing happening here because the fact is there is a lot of personification in this movie. I don't know someone who has gone through everything that this character has, but that's the thing about art is personification has nuggets rocks, boulders of truth in it. And it's what we see in that that I believe make us good spectators, a good audience, because we can pick up on those things. Whether intentional or unintentional, if we walk away feeling a little bit different about ourselves or about the world around us because of a character portrayal, if it's Joker, if it's Batman, if it's John Wick, whatever, there's something to be said about good art allowing us to think a little differently about the world around us may not change us. It may only be a coffee conversation a couple of times, or it could be profoundly groundbreaking to a person and make them think, you know what? Maybe I need to spend more time with people that are misunderstood because of a disability or because of a limitation that they might have. And when you look at a movie like Joker, and it forces you to look in that mirror, you realize that in a lot of ways we've got our own issues and that maybe we don't look so normal to a lot of people. So what it allows me to do is to really try to think about the things I say, why I say them, what's the purpose behind them. And it reminds me that more often than not, if I make a quick comment that's negative or that's for a laugh per se, I come across as lazy because there's no thought in that sarcasm might have some smartness to it. But for me, it's lazy because it doesn't require thought. It requires an instant emotional hot take that gets a reaction instead of a response. I want more responses. I want to engage in more meaningful conversation face to face with people if I can over the phone or through a Skype conversation, even better. But at the very least, any conversation that I have with anyone, I don't want it to be at the expense of someone else's a punchline. 
And I see this movie as championing that in the darkest of ways that there's a bit of irony that the punchline of the movie is the one who is trying to deliver a punchline in his career. And he is quite literally a punchline because he gets the crap beat out of him like <laughs> twice. Yeah. And I, one of the things I love from a cinematic standpoint is this kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, this little sleight of hand where we see a stand-up routine and we see it as coming across as a little bit troubled at first, but then we cut to the next scene and he's walking on the street with his girl and we assume that, wow, I guess he, I guess he killed it. It went over great. <laughs> and then we find out the reality and we get that callback to the fact that it wasn't real. And to me, I think that's, that speaks to the fact that sometimes we think more highly of ourselves. We think that things are actually better when they're really not. And to have a balance of being able to check ourselves, to get that feedback from others saying, Hey, how am I doing? Did that come across the way that I expected it to? That's a, that's a healthy way to conversate with people. That's a healthy way to have those relationships because you don't want to assume that what you're saying is one thing when it could come across in another way. Yeah. I guess we, well, we kind of established, you kind of established from the very start of this podcast. And then I got in relatively early to say like in agreement, we don't hate movies or the people that make them. <laughs> and I will always be more interested in what the filmmakers were trying to say than the level of perfection or subtlety that critics believe they did. Um, in this case, Todd Phillips was saying, I want to say, what if the Joker is not evil, is not crazy, and is not a lover of violence? What if he was a mentally ill person that our horrible uh, class biases, you know, the realities of poverty and mental health care, they allowed this person to be formed and at some level made him. I consider that. I will say, you know what? That has never been in a Joker movie. That's never been in a Batman movie. And I will applaud you for pointing that out because I think the, the, the truth is we might say, oh, you know, some of this was unsubtle. Some of this was a bit heavy handed. I know my, my mom and dad and friends of mine will walk out of the theater and go back to the normal lives that aren't surrounding film and say oh, i never thought about joker like that and i think a lot of it what's interesting for me is this comes at a time where every time one of the people that that critics of this movie talk about the like perpetrators of mass violence there's always the instant um it changed i guess over the last couple of years it used to be this person is evil and there was a smaller voice saying we need to be talking about this person because this person was probably suffering from a mental illness that went um, unseen. And a lot of people said, well, it's easier to say they're just evil and then move on. And I, over even the last few years, now it has become we need to talk about this person being mentally ill. But a lot of the time it's just used as lip service. And in the same way, it's, you know, evil for some, 
a, a failure of mental illness, but at the same time, that just stigmatizes mental illness even more, right? I think that the fact that it's it's interesting to me that this movie comes along at that time where you take the most quintessential evil comic book character, like the embodiment of wrongness in the DC universe, and say, okay, what if he is a case of mental illness that was you know, by climate and, and all of this stuff created. I think that is a worthwhile endeavor. I think if that was a comic book, I would be reading it. If it came out now in a comic book, I would say that's very timely. And that this is an inspired time to ask that question, just like we were saying, to hold a mirror up to the people reading it and saying, would in this situation, would you be one of the people going into the street, you know, saying, <laughs> We're all clowns. Kill the rich. Um, would you be one of the people calling him evil? Would you be the social worker kind of in the middle? Where would you fall? I think those questions are, are worth asking. And I think that I think this destigmatizes mental illness, which was the last thing I expected from this movie, to be honest. So even that was a, was a really pleasant surprise. I wouldn't expect that from a Joker story. <laughs> no, I wouldn't either. And, you know, another thing that can happen when we hold that mirror up is there are going to be some people that are going to relate to what the Joker experiences in a very painful way. And I've read reviews from some of them. I have talked to some of them offline even about their concerns about reliving some of the traumas that they've experienced. How do we deal with that as those who would support art in Hollywood, right? How does a movie address a serious topic like this that is going to potentially trigger hurtful memories in people? And is the movie responsible for not doing that? Or is there a responsibility on the viewer to not expect every movie to treat them in a way that is not necessarily always going to be perfectly comfortable i'm speaking obviously from a privileged position because i don't i I have not suffered with mental illness um i was not dealt as bad a deck as arthur or many people are i would hope that the intention would also have value to it i like i i would i would hope that a person who struggles with these kind of things would um, appreciate them even being shown. I, I feel like maybe that's the line that has crossed for me is this is just such a thing that people stigmatize and don't want to talk about and, and push to the side and just dismiss as crazy. You know, um, I, I would, I would hope that people who, see some of their experience in this movie would at least know that people like me walked out of it, understanding them a little bit better or, or, or having a little bit more empathy towards them. Um, I, I can't even imagine what it would be like for, for a person suffering from, from depression or um, paranoia or, or negative thoughts like Arthur says to see this story play out. But I, I would hope that the, the intention for me does not appear to be window dressing or, or taking advantage of that stuff. I think that it is a movie. I have the privilege of saying that this is a movie that involves a lot of these things, but is ultimately about Arthur. 
but uh, I kind of have to concede that um, people who actually have dealt with this have opinions that supersede mine. But but I at least walked out of it appreciating that a lot more. And honestly, I would be less likely to seek out stories that have that that aren't called Joker. Right. I mean, it just because I, that's alien to me. So Joker isn't. So if you if you take the Joker and and put it into those terms, then um, hopefully it's better for me. And I I'm sure there are other people who who've seen the movie. Like I said, my mom and dad are friends of mine that will say I never thought about Joker as a victim or um, a kind of sad case that we all kind of collectively screwed up. So hopefully that translates into action, in which case that is probably better. But um, but if someone's battling with this and I hated the movie and it was insulting, I will not argue with them. There's a couple of uh, pieces of art, I guess you want to call them, that come to mind. 13 Reasons Why, uh, the TV series that Aaron, you and I got the, got the, I guess, privilege of covering, was under a lot of scrutiny because of the way that suicide was depicted, glorified, whatever you want to call it. And as a result, there was a lot of backlash. There was a disclaimer that was then put in the front of each episode directing people to a suicide hotline. There's another book. There was a book that came out several years ago by David, uh, Dave Cullen that chronicled the events of Columbine that I would encourage anyone to read who uh, was familiar with that time period. I was in college when that took place and remember the events as they, as they happened, the aftermath, the stories that came out of it that ended up, some of them being exaggerated, some of them being spot on. Columbine, the book, gives context to Eric and Dylan, uh, the shooters that were involved in that. doesn't glorify what they did, but it gives as much as it can an understanding of where they come from and asks the question why. doesn't exactly answer it, but it speculates, which unless you're in their heads, you don't know for sure what the motive was behind what they did. But the book and in a sense, 13 reasons why help give context to what ends up taking place. One, a reality and one obviously a piece of fiction, but both coming from a place of real truth. And Joker does the same thing. It's wrapped up in a supervillain story, I guess you could call it. I don't know. I think it would be equally as successful, although not nearly as popular, if it were called Arthur Fleck and not Joker. If it were the story of the journey down this mental rabbit hole that he he takes and the results of that. I would say with a movie that handles these kinds of topics, it's important to be aware of those. And if someone is battling that if there are triggers i don't know that i would give full responsibility or even half responsibility to the filmmakers because now you're censoring someone's art for the sake of an individual or a group of people but that's not to say that there's a lack of respect for those people i pay money just like everybody else to go see these movies I have discretion. There are movies that I won't go see because I understand what's in them. I have a friend like Aaron who will screen movies and he will say, 
you would love this or this won't this is a movie you wouldn't like because it's got this stuff in it and i completely respect that and nobody's going to tell me i'm a douche for not going to see a movie that i don't like or they're going to tell me i'm an idiot because i like other kinds of movies that most people don't or in in whatever regard if i have triggers if i have sensitive areas that i know are going to affect me after i leave the theater for instance jump scare gore scary movies I have no problem admitting that those movies do something to me that I don't like. So I won't watch them. Now, that will dissipate over time, but the experience of it is not something I want. So in a movie like Joker that's going to have those kinds of triggers, which it absolutely could, I would caution someone who has that and talk to people before you see the movie. What is this like? What did you experience? And I don't think that's going to ruin a person's experience of a movie like this because they're getting information, uh, you know, spoilers aside. I think there is a personal responsibility on the audience more so than it is the filmmaker. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's on the audience as well and that it's not on the filmmaker at all. Honestly, I think that people can make movies about whatever they want to make movies about. And I experience this personally with regards to religious depiction all the time. It's the thing that gets me upset or makes me not like films is when I go into them and I see Christianity depicted in a way that I feel is hurtful or harmful to my version of the beliefs in that faith. And so that can turn me off on a movie real quick and I might not like it. I might give it a, a negative review, but I think what's important is if you're in the film criticism world and you're one of these people that are triggered by hurtful memories is that you are very clear about why. And that if a movie is harmful to your psyche and you are reviewing said movie, that your reasoning needs to be part of that review. If you're professionally going to write a review, I actually know someone and I don't think she's written one yet. She didn't react well to the movie. Um, I would guess that there is some trauma that this movie stirred up based on her comments. And she said she just didn't even know if she wanted to deal with it and go through the, the effort of writing up a review and having to deal with the people on both sides that either thought she was too nice to the movie or thought that she wasn't, you know, mean enough to the movie. And, so I think she just bailed on reviewing it altogether, uh, from what I could tell. And, and maybe that's the right decision for critics. For general moviegoers, I absolutely think you're right, Patrick. I think that there is a responsibility in maybe knowing what you're going to go see to some extent. And if you do get blindsided, it's okay to walk out of there and be upset and then to later just write it off. You know, and, and this is, I guess this just goes to what I would say is, we don't ever want to take away someone's experience, take away from what someone experienced. Like you said at the beginning, Andrew, if someone is triggered by Joker because they've experienced what Arthur Fleck experienced and that is hurtful to them, that is a serious thing. And, and no one should subject themselves to that if they don't want to. But there has to be a disassociation with holding the movie responsible for that and just moving on from it and saying, I am going to now not continue to engage with topics about this movie. I'm going to walk away from it because it is not for me and it does not do you know good things. It's not put me in a good place. And maybe that goes back to some of the mental health conversation too, about having people to talk to that aren't going to 
you know, yeah. allow you to just sit in your thoughts, right? If the movie, and that's part of what people may be, be upset about with this is that if it does trigger something in you and you're Arthur Fleck and you don't have yeah. a support system, that can be dangerous, right? And so I do totally acknowledge that. Um, and I don't, like you said, I don't have to deal with that either. And so it's hard to speak on that, but you know, my advice would always be to, as best you can, seek out mental health professionals. Um, when it does exist, I know this movie is very cynical about it, but there is a system out there, um, in some form at least. I do have another question about this. Is the weight of this movie, because it's so heavy, Patrick, you said you may not even want to watch it again. So is it one that you think can be, quote unquote, enjoyed multiple viewings, or do you think it would lose its impact because of how hard it hits? Jeez. I, I'll just say this, when, when you were describing that earlier, Mystic River comes to mind. Uh, that was the first movie I saw that was like, boy, I only want to see this once. It was just so heavy. I think the difference in this one is that uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is so mesmerizing and just um, captivating that I could probably watch it again for him. But the again, maybe that's because I I, I didn't have any triggers. Uh, you know, it's different for me that this is a character I I'm intensely interested in that I would probably want to see it again uh, to examine what is there now that I know what it is trying to do. Um, but I would, I would completely understand if somebody said, boy, I don't need to see that again, which was also my mother and father <laughs> had that feeling because um, it does not pull any punches. It's kind of, I guess in some sense, if somebody you went and saw a taxi driver with someone and they were like, boy, I got to go back. I'd be like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, I need new friends or something. Um, but I think that that Joaquin Phoenix is um, I don't know if I could appreciate every second of his performance having seen it just once. So that would be the thing that, that would have me coming back is um, there are certain scenes where he would start delivering lines or uh, it was more brilliant than I was able to prepare myself for. So maybe maybe, you know what, it's a DVD scene skip. Um, to, to see those ones that stick out in my memory, but but this uh, my first thought was that Mr. Griffer thing, so I completely understand <laughs> the dilemma. It's definitely a subject subjectivity to it. There's there's definitely subjectiveness to that, and I think there's three layers to this, or three ways you approach it. One is what I experienced, which is not necessarily well. There's the there's the trigger person who looks at a movie like this and says, no, um, this stirs up something in me and I really don't need to see that again. My reaction to it was the visceral reaction that I had. I don't want to lose that because of its impact. I had similar reactions to The Passion of the Christ, to Crash, to American History X, movies that I don't know that I could watch again because from, from my perspective, it would cheapen it for me. It would cheapen that experience. And there's logic and validity of what you're saying, Andrew, that you want to capture these incredible performances and, and hone in on those. And that's valid. It's incredibly valid. But I also think there's something to be said about movies that leave you going, okay, that was enough for me. And I want to, I want to leave it there and I want to be able to appreciate it for what it is and not to necessarily taint 
the experience that I had that may take something away from being able to experience that again or catching something on a second viewing. But then there's a third option, which you kind of alluded to, and that's the skip through these particular scenes <laughs> options. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that for me. There are uh, There's one particular scene that I think anybody would recognize, a very Tarantino-esque scene that takes place that just really makes my stomach churn. But the rest of the movie is beautiful. And I actually want to watch it again sans that scene. The question is, could I appreciate it? Could I enjoy it as much as I did the first time knowing that I'm watching an incomplete story? It's a question that I have about any movie that I would choose to skip scenes in. I think it changes over time as you get older and as you're experiencing things in different seasons of life. There are movies that I'll watch and I'll skip certain scenes because they make me uncomfortable, but I've become okay with that. Um, and it really is a subjective perspective because it really depends on who you are and what you want to gain from your movie experience. Yeah. I mean, I can't do anything but agree with you both. I definitely think it's subjective. I would say, I know quite a few people who have gone back to see it multiple times already and have loved it just as much or more. I myself think it is absolutely able to be enjoyed multiple times. One of the reasons is because of its cinematic qualities. It is phenomenal from an artistic point of view in every regard cinematography, score, that performance, etc. But the other additional thing that this movie has that I think makes it worth going back to revisit is this movie has something that lends itself to further exploration, which is the scenes that we don't necessarily know, all of which are in Arthur's head or not in his head. I've got a buddy, one of our friends from uh, Emmanuel... Emmanuel Noisette from E-Man's Movie Reviews. He's been on our podcast several times. And he came out of his second viewing and he started texting me. And he was like, dude, dude, it just, it all changed for me. It all changed for me. You gotta, you gotta think about it differently. And like, I don't think that whole subway scene when he kills the three guys is, it's, it's not all the way it happened. Like some of that is in his head. Like he's exaggerating constantly throughout the movie. And when you start to like pull out these different points in which He's imagining things, right? At the end of the movie, when I first watched it, I thought it was in real time. I thought the wreck was really happening. I thought he was being saved by the clowns in the city that were torching Gotham. Like, I thought that was all happening. But in hindsight, I think I realized that it's actually what's going on in his head as he's on the police car ride to the insane asylum, to Arkham. So there's like a lot of little things that happen like that. There were moments when, you know, you don't necessarily know right away. You see his neighbor Sophie with him at his mom's bedside and you're like, oh, is that is that actually happening or not? And of course, the movie is very specific about showing you that that one, that scene, that it's not real. But I think that there might be moments in this movie that are worth revisiting to kind of figure out a little more about what is happening in Arthur's head versus maybe what we think is directly truly happening in the world with regards to his actions so uh, i think it has a lot of value for future viewings i know i'm excited to go see it again i've been upset that i haven't been able to i had my kids this weekend so i couldn't get out to a second viewing but i plan on getting one in soon 
Well, the violence, uh, Patrick, that you love so much, <laughs> shockingly <laughs> to me, Joker does not have constant or prolonged violence. That's what I expected. But the few moments it does have are extremely visceral and bloody. And I'm wondering how this affected you guys' experience versus what you might have expected, like me, going into it. And do you think that the violence was used effectively in the storytelling to set up the Joker character, Andrew? I don't know. I, I assume Patrick will agree with me that one of the kills kind of tiptoes on the edge of prolonged. Um, I got the point before I concluded, but um, but I think they're, they're used effectively because I felt like they appeared at times where I was starting to empathize, not just starting to empathize with Arthur, but starting to see things from his point of view. He would cross the line and do something that was awful that I, that I could not um, get on board with. I think the, that twist, uh, that fight club esque twist, uh, likely ends with one that i think most audiences will just agree i am not on his side from here on out um because of what's happened even though that is left a little ambiguous my main thought on this uh and i will once again go to watchman was another movie which was criticized for its gruesome depictions of violence i feel like i was just talking about this on my podcast but uh zach snyder when asked about that said um it's it's excessive or it's it's irresponsible to not show that, you know, to have these fights happen and uh, have gunshots be fired or, or knives stabbed and just pretend that it's all fine and people just fall on the ground and then they're not there anymore. You know, that's the irresponsible thing. If Joker is a guy that kills people, we should it makes sense to be faced with why that makes him a different kind of person than the average person, because Every single one of the kills is given the dignity to be horrifying on its own. Like the the murder of one person is horrifying. So the fact that they are allowed the room to be horrifying, I I respect that. I I feel like after having seen Watchmen and after having heard that response to it from the filmmaker, I feel now anytime I start to think, well, you didn't need to show me that, it's me wanting to not feel bad it's me it's me wanting to escape and not actually have to deal with the reality of of what's happening right now so i feel like that goes with joker is another um perfect candidate of that um the way that the way that blood is used and amplified um digitally is obviously to get a point across it's stopping well short of tarantino but but still um i found it effective and the first kill of the movie, I think I was very surprised that it was going to be um, that graphic. And then I felt by the end of the movie, I couldn't imagine that it could tell the story it's telling being anything but that. I agree. It, when you look at movies today, it's easy to swallow a gunshot easy to swallow a kill with a gun and Todd Phillips does a an interesting thing by allowing multiple shots after a person is dead does it twice and sandwiched in between that is what I think is a a bloody just gruesome death 
And I think that's by design because it's, again, as an audience, we've seen a lot of people get shot and we've seen a lot of people get shot multiple times. We haven't seen a lot of times where a person gets shot and then out of spite or out of anger or out of whatever, we see that multiple shot after the person's dead. And we see those two things at the beginning and the end and then bookended in between is, I think, an emotional kill. One that is done with the same kind of intent, but with a lot more gruesomeness, something that we're not used to, unless you watch a Tarantino movie in which this is played differently, by the way. It's played very much in a in a gruesome, terrifying sense. I was sitting next to a couple who nervously started laughing at that second kill and I thought to myself, this is probably a Tarantino-esque reaction because there's a small audience that's used to that, but the general audience is not. And for someone like me who doesn't see it a lot, I could definitely voice my opinion and say that wasn't necessary, but it was consistent with what we were seeing with Fleck. We were seeing a guy who was – he had just killed his mom – and through every kill, I don't think I remember this. I would have to go back and watch it again. Aaron, you can do this for me. Um, he never smiles when he does it. It's always a straight face. Of course, he's in makeup, I think, in every scene. No, not when he kills his mom. But in every gruesome death, he's in he's in makeup. So we don't actually I, – I, we can't really tell if he's actually smiling. But – he doesn't have an angry face as well. It's just this straight, no emotion on his face. And to me, that's even scarier because we don't know what's going on in his head. Yeah. I mean, we can assume that he's angry, but then he's able to switch in an instant to sit down and almost relax like he's just finished a Tabata workout. And the his little person friend who is just incredibly frightened and I'm frightened with him by the way I'm hoping that he doesn't get jacked um he says you can go and then of course there's that great little sidebar humor piece where he's trying to reach the door and he can't because it's locked and he he opens the door and he says I always liked you and I wasn't thinking wow that's so sweet I was thinking man I hope I don't piss anybody off like that (laughs) I hope I need to become friends with everybody. I mean, that's kind of the reaction that I had. And I think that was by design because you've got these three different kills that are done with different motives. One is done out of defense. One is done out of anger and one is done out of justification, but they all are done with purpose And I can't fault, I can't criticize a director for doing what he did because they were done in a way that amplified the supposed emotion, the supposed justification for where he was at those different points in the narrative. Yeah, I think that uh, was also the point for me where I mentioned before um, my now secondhand love of of true crime serial killers etc um that at first he was coming across as 
he is one of the people suffering from mental illness who have become a danger, right, to themselves or others. The the first kills are shocking. Um, you know, after finding out the the truth, um, it is total emotional chaos and then uh, rage um, with his mother. And then it was. Oh, the one in the apartment with the guys from work is because he wanted to do it. And and for me, that's where it crossed the line. Also, pairing it with, you were always nice to me, so I'm going to let you go. I'm I'm choosing, I don't want to kill you, so I won't. So that's where it's crossing from like a, you know, an Ed Gein to like a Ted Bundy, where it's, you know, I am not killing because I am mentally ill. I am the Joker. I'm killing because I like it. I like doing it now. And that was, that mental illness doesn't go away. I think that, but by that point, that was for me cluing in. Uh, I actually thought that's actually pretty gracefully done because that was when he was in the full white. Um, Arthur is gone now, you know, they, they came to see Arthur and he was Joker um, at that point. And I thought that was a, a neat transition. Also, if anyone is interested in more of, the difference between a criminally insane Joker and a criminally sane Joker, Harley Joker, criminal sanity. Uh, first issue available now, which deals with all of this. So, um, but that that made it very fresh in my mind. So when I saw that and thought it was the skin crawling shot of him becoming an animal in that doorway um, with his arms outstretched, that I thought, oh, this is just Joker now. He is, uh, he's not going to be saved. Um, from this and like we mentioned before um, De Niro says sadly the line that was needed earlier that not everybody is bad right there are good people that that would help but I knew by that point this is Joker he's not hearing that anymore so that violence I thought was was very effective that kill stood out as one that was um, indulgent but made sense when I thought about it after the fact, because that was the first time that Arthur was accepting the, the power that this is giving him now. Yeah. I love what you said, Andrew, early on about how the violence is there not to always just be exploitative and ratchet up the factor for those who like to see it and kind of get their kicks off of it, but to make us again with the mirror, right? To make us sit there and watch it and to think about the reality of what it would really be like, um, what this person is, the real grotesqueness of what this person is doing. I I do think that there is a level of some of this violence that is also imagined that uh, I can't get it out of my head since the man brought it up to me. And, you know, how much of his acts are exactly taking place as we may think they have in real life versus what he is exaggerating them in his head. He exaggerates uh, quite a bit else during the film. He exaggerates what he believes his appearance on Murray would be like. He exaggerates his relationship with Sophie that doesn't actually exist. So I wonder if some of that is played up as well. Uh, he's seeing it differently. And I'm, like I said, I'm excited to go back and kind of maybe work my way through that on a second viewing. One little thing we don't see in the violence department, though, is the Sophie uh, what I believe is her murder. So he shows up in her house or in her apartment. She walks in and we cut uh, at the end of that interaction with her. 
Yeah. I think we get the sense that her daughter is in the building or in the, in the room with her or in the apartment. My feeling walking out of that scene was the sense that he has murdered her and her daughter and we just didn't get to see it. Did you guys come up with something else? Patrick, you're shaking your head. What did you think? No, I think that there is a kryptonite element here and that's children. I think that when you have a character uh, like like Sophie and he's connected with her daughter to an extent, I think that that is the saving grace for them. The fact that she has a daughter and that will play into my, you know, my connecting point a little bit uh, that I'll, I'll go into more detail, but for my money, I don't think that he killed them. I'm uh, famously more of a less is more here person. This, this was the one place the, um, I was really hoping when, when Sophie said, um, you're Arthur, right? Uh, from down the hall that that was where they would leave it because that was all I needed to kind of, piece together the reality of this then it kind of crossed into the um uh the american psycho atm you know the feed me a cat um where it's like okay well now i don't even know anyway my reaction to that was uh because there's also the sirens when he's in his apartment alone but i think that that was one where todd phillips knew her character and her daughter is best to leave explicitly ambiguous just because I don't particularly know if it changes my feelings towards the movie or his arc in it that much one way or another, it kind of carries on in the very next scene. But um, I will just say that I don't know what he did to her, but Todd Phillips doesn't want me to, <laughs> and I will be okay with that then. Was was he in was he in makeup in that scene? This is going. I'm, I'm taking my theory to the next level. Was he in makeup when he was in there? I he was can't all rainy, remember. Right? He was all rainy in his jacket. Yeah. yeah. If he that wasn't, was, I, I'm going to say that, that shot my... because when he was coming into the apartment, he's never looked more powerful. So. Um, yeah, hmm. it's after that I believe that he goes and gets makeup on which is what triggered me what what made me think like okay he has committed these murders he's laughing he is he is going to he has transitioned himself mentally like he has let go of it he has done this thing it is not out of revenge it is not trying to get back at someone that hurt him necessarily and so now he has crossed over to the other side but to andrew's point there's still mental illness there we can't not recognize yeah we can't ignore and in his mind he had a relationship with her there was a positivity. There was a positive relationship that he had, real or imagined. Nothing she said again. And Todd Phillips leaves it ambiguous. So rightly so. We can. Ha- that's why we can have this conversation, right? Yeah. Um. But she never says anything that we hear that would trigger him. The fact that she says you're Arthur, right? Maybe that's a. Re- maybe that's a small reminder to him that oh yeah, I'm mm. not quite far gone yet. This is the optimist talking, obviously. I like and, it. I like your I'd like to, I'd like to believe that he spares them, just like, not just like, in a similar way that he spares his friend who was a friend to him. Yeah. Real think, or imagined, yeah. you have, in his mind, he has friends and enemies. Yeah. I think if a person read it as him deciding to do that, which was just completely wrong, and that triggering his transformation into joker or him having the chance to and deciding he doesn't want to kill her 
could also have the same effect, right? That I'm now killing, I'm not killing indiscriminately or out of passion or uh, instability. I'm choosing and hey, you know, welcome in friends from work right on cue. Uh, So I think that for the people out there who don't want to think one way or the other, I think both can function in the same way there. All right. Well, I, we've got a couple things left and they are not nearly as heavy. Okay. Well, maybe one sort of, but this is the exciting part that for me made this movie just jump from something really, really good to something very special. I personally went into this expecting no Batman tie in. I had read, we're not going to get Batman. And we, I guess we kind of didn't get Batman in a sense, but we do get Thomas Wayne. And we do get to see Bruce. And I will tell you, my reaction, guys, as a Batman fan, was when we saw Bruce for the first time, I was holding back a literal squeal inside my throat. And I was grabbing Kalesa's arm, and I just was, like, shaking it because I was freaking out that Bruce was in this movie. And when I when we had the Joker interacting with Bruce and Arthur is sitting there doing magic tricks and Alfred comes up in the background and he's never actually like identified as Alfred, but it's very clearly like a young Alfred. I, I just was losing it. I thought it was brilliant way to tie in the lore of Bruce into this story. And what we find out is that in this world, these two are, potentially half-brothers. This is another big thing that is left ambiguous, in my opinion. It's never actually determined. And whether it's determined or not by reality, it's definitely not determined in Arthur's mind. I feel like he walks away not having concrete proof either way of whether Bruce is or is not his half-brother, which said, whether this goes anywhere into sequels or not, I just believe it's a fascinating concept for the eventual Batman versus Joker opposition that we'll come to know. So I want to know how it works for you guys. Uh, And Andrew, obviously we're going to go to you first. You're the DC super guy. So did you think, did you know or think that Bruce was going to be in this? And then how did the way that they you know, worked them into the story, calling them half brothers or, you know, the whole storyline of them possibly being half brothers mm-hmm. work for you. I, I, unfortunately me being who I am, I think in one trailer, there was a shot of a boy and I thought, Oh, that's absolutely Bruce. Um, oh, but of course then, you did. <laughs> yeah. But what I, I did love, um, Arthur's line. I just wanted, I was trying to make him smile. Uh, it, it, it felt so much to me like I'm, I'm fresh off reading, uh, Brian Azzarello and Lee Bermejo's Batman Damned, which takes another look at Thomas Wayne. And this twist in particular felt very much like an Azzarello where you, it's not lip service, but both the scene with Bruce earlier on and then the Joker's words being put into the mouth of the guy who, who kills the parents. Um, it completes it as an alternate take in a way i think for me that it is um then i guess people can't can't even ask well how does batman get made then uh you just make it a complete story by saying in this version of it 
look at that. Isn't that cool? Isn't that thematically resonant, you know, <laughs> et cetera. Um, I really thought it was interesting. And then the, the shot that they have at the end of Arthur and Bruce, uh, it, it's, I appreciate it as a Batman fan, but I think as a movie fan, I don't have a lot of the same questions that people might coming out of it. I am constantly tempered by seeing this movie with my father, which I will, I will share with everybody here during one of the quietest parts of the movie. My, he leaned over and whispered to my mother, Thomas Wayne was Batman's dad. Right. And of course, everyone with an earshot, everyone with an earshot chuckled. <laughs> and I wanted to stand up and be like, he's almost 70 years old. Do you think, why would he, ca- why would he keep that in his reserve of knowledge that Bruce Wayne's father's name is Thomas? Uh, it was actually in the silent moments of Arthur walking up to the fence. So perfect timing, uh, which I always try to temper as, oh yeah, this is just, an extra detail for, for the people who, who know the movie to kind of a, huh, for me more than a, a really sub substantial thing. But I think it is very, very cool. Uh, way more cool than the Tim Burton Batman version of it to me, which is like eerily close, but, um, I like it more here. I will, I will not be changing the canon in my mind, but I think in this version of the story that makes Joker the protagonist, I think it's a very cool way to, to make him also the, like, you know, proto. He's not only what Batman will be formed to oppose, but he literally made it happen. That's a really, really cool little, like, flourish. I teeter back and forth on whether or not I like this aspect of the movie because I really enjoyed the protagonist Joker story. And when the Thomas Wayne, Bruce Wayne element started migrating into it, I caught myself slightly rolling my eyes going, Oh no, don't do this. Don't, don't, don't. You're, you're, <laughs> you're good. You don't need to do this. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. But by the time the movie finished, these felt like really great accent pieces. They didn't distract from my experience and understanding Joker, the only criticism I have is the coda. I would have loved for Phillips to end the movie with Joker on the police car and the crowd around him, not with the scene after that where he's in the asylum talking about the joke that the therapist doesn't get and the callback to Bruce and his dead parents the perfection of that was taken by that coda because the last shot of the movie is the one I'm going to remember. And the last shot of the movie I'm going to remember now is Bruce with his dead parents. And I'm fine with that rewriting of history or that depiction of how the relationship gets started, because I can't forget the fact that this is a Joker movie. This isn't an Arthur Fleck movie. And there is a connection to him and Bruce. Yeah. He is Bruce's greatest enemy. And he is a foil for Bruce in a lot of ways. Not in this movie. So to ignore that completely, I think that would do a disservice to the character of the Joker, not necessarily to the character of Fleck. But I could have done without that last moment because 
this was the Joker. And that told me that it's the Joker on Batman too. And, <laughs> and that, that's really, I, I didn't, I didn't want that, but it did not ruin my experience at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think the thing that, that made it really enjoyable for me was when I thought, Oh, if this is supposed to mean Gotham was simmering and then this event caused the absolute anarchy that that erupted like this rioting didn't stop like this was only tamped down a little bit and then all of the lower class decided it's time to get crazy it's time to come up into gotham and then that would his creating of that also forged the one guy who would we all know oppose it uh that then makes it a little bit more satisfying because it basically undercuts <laughs> everything that Arthur could have even claimed to have like tangentially, you know, like uh, caused here, which might even on repeat viewings be like the joke that he's referring to in the final scene in my head canon. Uh, but I, I totally get the like, Oh, right. Yeah. This is bat. This is a Batman movie also. Yeah. yeah I, I just love it. I love everything about it. I love the idea that Thomas Wayne may have created Batman and the Joker like literally created uh, physically Whoa. speaking. So I, I just, I think it's, I think it's phenomenal. And for me, I was blown away. I was excited and I thought it was just enough. I think it, you know, Patrick, you said it teeters, like it could have easily gone too far. And there was a line that could have been crossed into where you were trying to pay too much fan service to where you lost sight of your story, but it worked out just beautifully for me so this is where i think it succeeds uh, we've talked on the show about intertextuality the ability for a movie to call back to nostalgia to get its audience to connect to a classic piece of fan fiction inside a a new rendition of it the force awakens is a fantastic example with the millennium falcon this does the opposite of that it gets you so engrossed in the story of Arthur Fleck and how he becomes Joker that the moments that you get with Thomas Wayne, who I would not vote for as mayor, by the way, just going on record to say that and getting his relationship with Bruce and how that eventually plays out. Love the tie in on the chaos that is depicted causing the death of Bruce's parents. It makes logical sense. It makes sense that it wasn't the Joker that did it but it was caused indirectly by his actions. To me, that's a successful use of characters and being able to plus one your audience by showing them these different things. Even if I don't necessarily buy into the half-brother theory, again, I go back to I see adoption papers in the scene, but if everything could be a dream or a reality, obviously that's still on the table. Like Maybe it is real. Maybe the papers that he's reading are not actual adoption papers. Um, I don't think that holds as much water as what we see near the end. And I, I like the fact that it didn't go that far, that it used the Batman accent pieces to elevate just enough. But even if it didn't have those, it still would have been successful to me. Well, one last thing before we move on to our connecting points time is an easy one. The, oh, it's very easy. Very, very easy. So the Joker is one of the most iconic supervillains of all time, right? And he's been depicted on screen by multiple actors, many of whom are fantastically talented. And so now that we've discussed this movie on its own terms, 
I just wanted you to briefly compare and contrast. So briefly being the keyword, but where does this film and this depiction of Joker rank for you amongst the other greats like Hamill and Ledger and Nicholson and Andrew, you can't totally just weasel your way out of this and not pick something. And let so notice what you're you're thinking. So, oh well, no, there's a reason that that name is not in there. <laughs> there is a reason that that was not left in this lineup of names that I read off. <laughs> I I put I think because I enjoy so many of them for different reasons. I've like mentally divided them into the depictions that like uh, speak to the comic book fan in me, which is. Um, I'll say Jared Leto, uh, Mark Hamill, Troy Baker, and some of the newer stuff. Those are like watching a comic book type character being depicted on screen. And then Jack Nicholson and Heath Ledger are playing a character who I don't identify in to, to me as how Joker reads in the comics that I've read him in, but I love them as film characters uh, i think they're incredibly portrayed and i would put this joaquin phoenix in with them so if people wanted to look at those two groups and see heath ledger and jack nicholson and now me putting joaquin phoenix with them and attribute some sense of value to them uh that's fine but I, that's probably a credit to the movie too i don't lump it in with the comic book characters because comic books haven't really delivered a joker like this and i think it is i think it succeeds like ledger and nicholson because of the actor playing them um more than the writing or or the world that they're in even i think it's a it's a win for joaquin phoenix so he's earned the distinction of standing beside heath ledger as people who were like it's not even just a great joker it's just an incredible performance uh ignore comics because the movies are better (laughs) no i'm not gonna do that (laughs) i would agree I'm going to I'm going to lean on the the movie depictions just because I'm not as big of a Batman comic reader as as you are as as Aaron is, you know, Superman's my guy, but I grew up being introduced to Jack Nicholson. So that was always going to be my first introduction to Joker. So to your point, Andrew, having not seen a lot of the animated series i know of mark hamill's fantastic portrayal i think as a voice actor he has found a second life um because of the way that he can do that uh and just be diverse with his vocal stylings he does it in the flash too with a couple of his uh his performances there but you're right with when it comes to the the depictions on screen as the movie joker if you wanted to categorize in that way ledger's still going to be my number one because I feel like when you talk about Joker as a character, you have to talk about him in contrast to Batman. And joke and Heath Ledger's Joker is a fantastic foil to Batman. Um, going into watching this, my friend Matthew was like, "All right, who do you think is going to be better when when it comes out? You know, you got Heath Ledger or Joaquin Phoenix." Which that's a great comparison because you expect this grounded type of character to come out based on the trailers. And I said, it's not fair to compare the two because of the fact that they're doing two different things. We see Ledger's Joker as only being successful in contrast to Bruce Wayne's Batman. 
And that's perfect for Nolan's The Dark Knight. I don't think that would work if we had Joaquin Phoenix's Joker against the um, Christian Bale Batman, because that wasn't the point. And likewise, I don't think we could have gotten the performance from Heath Ledger. Maybe, but I don't know that I would want to see that performance from Ledger going down that mental rabbit hole that Joaquin Phoenix does. It's all about tone, really, with me. And so when you're giving me a character who is not as good without his counterpart, I I need those two. And Ledger yeah. and Bale go together as a couple, whereas Joaquin Phoenix can stand on his own. And I think the way Joker plays out versus the way The Dark Knight plays out was perfect for both of those performances. And I wouldn't want to see it. So for me, I would say that Heath Ledger by a by a nose over Joaquin Phoenix and yeah although although can I ask this where does the moment of him putting the fingers into his mouth and spreading that blood grin rank among like all-time Joker movie moments it's pretty fantastic yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's definitely up there that was Oh my goodness gracious. Yeah. That was chilling. I mean, it just, it gives you legit chills across your body. Um, I actually love the way you guys both answered, to be honest. It's hard for me as well with it being both a favorite character. And I, I just, as much as I love ranking things for fun, the real truth of it lies for me in what Patrick was just saying that Things are either successful or not successful in my world, mostly. It's hard to say better or not when you talk about something completely different context. And Ledger is perfect in his role as the Joker, in his movie as the Joker. And Phoenix is perfect in his role in his movie. Um, I am not as much of a Nicholson fan, so I put him a little bit lower. I think it was fine. Batman has not held up for me in the same way. And, and part of that is because of the Nicholson character. I just don't necessarily like the portrayal of it but i do think that ledger and phoenix really get to the heart of two different depictions of the joker that are absolutely equally incredible so you you, um, you said ledger yes you meant ledger you meant leto and phoenix no no i did not mean leto he and, meant you know he meant caesar romero that's who he you meant. know what's funny is <laughs> jared leto is actually one of my favorite actors and favorite people like he was my first man crush for years like i just he's i get it yeah person. the green hair the tattoos hey i, I, I get not, it that's not what i meant i meant like his like jesus look <laughs> you know like his 30 seconds to mars i've seen him live i love the guy but like no, I just, the, the, it's too on the, and it's not him. That's the thing is it's not the performance of the Joker in Suicide Squad. I actually think that he nails the performance on the money that he is given on the page to nail. It is not his fault. It is more <laughs> the script's fault. It's not your fault. Like he, it's not your fault. he didn't. He didn't write damaged on his body. Like that's in <laughs> some production notes somewhere. And that's my problem, right? Like I think he, he, anyway, I think Phoenix is amazing and I think it's Oscar worthy, just like I think Ledger's was and the, the rest are not. So there we go. But I love Hamill and Baker as well. I mean, you can't go wrong with their voice work. Can Cesar Romero get an honorable mention from Batman 66? Come on. He's awesome. Sh sh sure. Yeah. He's, he's great with the mustache. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. I remember. 
Don is somewhere. Don Shanahan is loving this because he's been going back through that series recently. And anyway. All right, guys. Well, this has been awesome and long and hopefully everyone has enjoyed this conversation. I'm really glad to have Andrew here for his ex- exceptional uh, expert opinions. <laughs> I know he's probably laughing over there because he doesn't feel that way. But no, just having your perspective is awesome, man. And so let's go ahead and wrap up here by going over our connecting points as we like to do. And Andrew, you can go first. Uh, I will ironically not use an explicit word. Uh, my connecting point was the moment when everything was seeming down for Arthur and I was feeling bad for him because I was thinking he is a guy who knows he needs help and he's trying to find it and he's going to be denied it. And the social worker at that point said they don't in, I won't use the French, but they don't care about you. They don't care about people like you and they don't care about people like me, like the, the people that are trying to help people like you. And that was, the moment in the movie where I thought, oh, good, I'm not reading, I'm not bringing what I know into this. That is the point that they are trying to lay down as as the heart of this story is that um, the biggest crime he committed was that nobody cared about preventing him from becoming Joker, which was a a really cool approach. I, I was totally then locked in on what story they were trying to tell and uh I felt very good about where the morality of the movie was to call out the fact that your enemy is going to be the people because they didn't care about you when you needed help. And I think that uh is powerful. It makes Joker's origin better, even if it doesn't make him a better character. So that one uh really stuck with me. And then I think I mentioned when it was kind of echoed with the, uh, Arkham employee that was just grim stuff for, for anybody who's worked in social work or any, I imagine that will probably also be a moment where they are, uh, have a reaction to it. And I, I was there with it. Well, Patrick, what about you? Where was uh, your connecting point falling? Well, well, that was a hard scene to watch and knowing that the social worker didn't really have a choice, but at the same time you knew that she wasn't quite into wanting to help him, that she was kind of like the court appointed, lawyer at that point for me arthur's discovery about the truth concerning his mom and his adoption was a very emotional moment for me and whether or not it was real or in his mind the way i felt was real to see him read through and have the interviews depicted and shown to us seeing the caseworker talking to his mom and read back to her or tell her what happened, how her child was uh, handcuffed to a radiator and beaten. And to, to have the moment where she says, but he was a happy child. And to yeah. know going back that his condition wouldn't allow him to scream for help was incredibly just heartbreaking to know that he could not help himself. He couldn't cry for help because of his condition. And whether or not that's a real condition or not, to have that set up in a way to lead to that moment and to realize that she couldn't see that, 
and that he needed he needed to be set free it just broke my heart and I felt that with him that it wasn't that he was heartbroken that he wasn't Thomas Wayne's son he was heartbroken that his mom who he loved dearly who he thought he loved dearly yeah. who he took care of who he championed didn't know him and it harkens back to that conversation uh, that you mentioned earlier with the caseworker where he says nobody saw me nobody sees me and in that moment i wanted to have i wanted to champion him and saying i know you i you are somebody and to think that he truly was a product of abuse and that he needed to be told over and over again, it's not your fault. It's not your fault, but never got that opportunity to be told that. It was just absolutely tear-jerking, and I, I, I don't think any other moment stood out more than that to me. Oh, that's good stuff, man. Um, whew, uh, mine is definitely not that emotional, so maybe I shouldn't have let you go Bring us back and... to the light one. Come on, bring us back. Um, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Mine is when he's dancing and it's playing, hey, ho, let's go. No, actually, though, that scene is freaking awesome. It really is. It's really difficult because, like, you just watched him, like, murder someone. But yeah. as far as, like, getting into the psyche of where he's at in that moment, I I just loved the soundtrack that's playing in that moment. I just thought it was great. But uh, mine actually overall is not really a scene. I think my favorite connecting thing about the movie in general is just putting that mirror up to ourselves, putting our mirror up to society at all times. Um, the duality of having sympathy and condemnation for the same person, basically holding people responsible for their actions while also acknowledging the things that might happen in their lives to get them to that point, I think is very important. And I really believe that these points are made by Phillips in the film during that Murray segment so well that I briefly talked about earlier. And it's part of why I don't understand when I consistently see critics out there who are saying the movie doesn't have anything to say and the movie doesn't have any conviction. And I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. So when he makes his joke and of course he's getting laughed at because he had to write his jokes in his notebook. And I feel very sorry for him in that moment, but he gets this joke and he says, it's the police, ma'am. Your son's been hit by a drunk driver. And, and they're like, the first thing that the lady next to him says is, well, you can't joke about that. And that's when he says that, you know, system decide, the, the system decides what is right or wrong and what is funny or not. And that resonated with me a lot, you know, because it happens. People will often laugh at things that I don't find funny at all. I find them hurtful or, um, somewhat, you know, even abusive in a sense, if someone would, they wouldn't, that whole thing, like if you wouldn't say it to someone's face, maybe you shouldn't say it at all. But because it's collectively agreed upon as something that is funny, um, we are okay with it. And it manifested itself earlier in the film, I think, perfectly because I was talking to a friend and a person was saying, you know, one of the funniest parts of the movie for them, the funniest lines in the movie was the joke about Arthur's little person friend where he says the coworker in the area in the locker room is coming up to him and he says, you know, do people, do when you guys go play golf, do you call it mini golf or do you just call it golf? Right. And that got a lot of laughs in the theater. By the end of the movie, man, I was so reflective on that line because it immediately made me think about 
Like, that's what we do. That is what we do. We make fun of someone at someone's expense, and we collectively think it's funny. And we're kind of conditioned to it. Like, I don't think I'm a bad person for laughing at that, but I need to ask myself why I find that funny. And especially why I would find that funny saying it to a person, right? But our initial reaction is sometimes to laugh at that. And so just holding that mirror up, being reminded to do that. And Arthur actually says at the end of that Murray segment, as he's kind of going off on his little rant that he gets to say, he says, everybody yells and screams at each other. No one is civil anymore. No one thinks about what it's like to be the other guy. And I just thought that was brilliant. And so that, again, I don't understand how you can think this movie doesn't have a point or make any, have anything to say. It's saying something. Yeah. It's a matter of, do we want to listen to it? Do we want to actually take it on board as advice and do the hard work of looking at ourselves and seeing if it applies to us or in what way we can apply it to our lives? Or do we just want to write it off and be like, oh, you're just, you're just being over, you're just over exaggerating. You're just being overly sensitive because it's not the political persuasion that I aspire to, or it's not the faith that I have. It's not the thing that I believe. So therefore yeah. you must be overreacting. So all kind of all that in a bubble, I guess, is where I connected the most to the film. Patrick, that's it. I'm done talking. Okay. So you can, uh, <laughs> I'm going to point at you. People can't see me, but I'm pointing at you. It's like calling so, me out. Like you need to say something important. Make sure you let people know where Andrew can be found. Not well, to, you don't have to, but he can. Okay. <laughs> so Andrew, why don't you do that for us? Why don't you tell us where people can find you on social media and maybe keep this conversation going? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Andrew B. Dice, D-Y-C-E, and you can find everything I write at ScreenRant.com. And of course, of course, after uh, a brief hiatus due to some insane life events, the Batman v Superman by the Minute podcasts is stands on the cusp, gentlemen, on the cusp of Batman and Superman meeting for the first time. I believe that happens in minute 48 or minute <laughs> 49. I feel like you've been doing this for two years. Yeah, this is uh, imminent, guys, <laughs> imminent. So, yeah, you can find that at BBS by the minute and uh, on all of your podcast stuff. You have, at this point, hours to catch up on if this is the first year you're hearing of it. Can I give a can I give a single plug that I know you guys will appreciate? For sure. Um, when Bruce goes to visit his parents' cemetery, the stained glass window, Stephen and I drilled our heads into the table after we realized it is clearly an angel dressed as Superman, uh, backed by skyscrapers in flames. Um, so Bruce's subconscious is trying to make him see something there that he then wakes up and downs pills and alcohol. Um, so it's getting a lot, it's been getting a lot of fun and, um, so good. once Batman and Superman actually start having scenes together, I imagine it's going to get just even that much better. Oh yeah. <laughs> It'll be great. It'll be great. Well, that officially wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film, uh, coming up over the next two weeks. You'll want to stay close by as we take on a double dose of zombies covering Zombieland next week, followed by its anticipated sequel, Zombieland Double Tap. In the meantime, for our donors, as we mentioned earlier, we are throwing Zombie Love Your Way, giving you a chance to vote on one of five movies for our October donor pick, and you'll have until the 10th to cast your vote. Or if you're not part of the Patreon family, check out patreon.com slash for more details. 
Aaron, Andrew, it was great conversating with you on this. And we will talk soon, everyone. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.